Hello, everyone. This is episode 10 of Interop Talk, and we are live and in person at HLTH 2023. We are over-caffeinated, unprepared, and ready to talk interoperability. So this should be exciting and free-flowing. Um, I'm, I'm joined here uh, by uh, Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla, by Jennifer Blumenthal, founder and CEO of One Record, which was... Uh, uh, now a part of Milliman and Telescript, uh, where she is the director of product. And special guest, Brendan Keeler, head of product at Flexba, who was kind enough to step in for uh, uh, when we had an opening. So thank you, Brendan. <laughs> you know, what, what we, we like to sell our guests as hard as possible uh, and, and uh, really do appreciate Brendan joining. And Brendan actually has been on the podcast before. Uh, I believe it may have been episode three, uh, but in any case, uh, glad to have him here with us today. So, it, 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 you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, the conference and, and what we've seen here and a little bit of the hot topics and the buzz. I think the, the first thing that I would say is I have never in my career been at one of these shows where the very last day at the very end of the day felt like it was the busiest part of the conference. Uh, and yet that seems to be the case that we're seeing here. I've, I, you know, it's, now it's getting a little later in the afternoon as I look out at the show floor, it's starting to, to, to be a little less busy. But this afternoon, w to me, was pretty clearly the busiest part of, of the show. And I think that's you know, an interesting takeaway that perhaps the conference organizers can, can think about for future years. I mean, I think it's pretty clear why Fat Joe and Ashanti bringing people in big time. So. Uh, that could be one part of it. Yeah, Jenny and Stephen don't want to touch that one. No, no. <laughs> Under-caffeinated. I, I think that uh, starting on a holiday weekend was, uh, was the kiss of death for the first day. Yeah, we're, we're going to bring people on a football Sunday of a holiday weekend into Las Vegas and whatever could go wrong. Uh, but, but in any case, uh, it, has, it has been a good conference. There, there's been a lot of, of productive conversations, I think. A lot of people uh, that, that I know from the industry uh, I've seen around and got to meet a lot of, of other new people as well. But uh, if there was sort of one theme to your experience at the conference, where you feel the buzz is... I guess, what would, would each of you say? I feel like Brendan should answer this based off his tweets. I mean, I, w I wish it was one uh, word that started with an A and ended in an I, API, but it's actually AI. You know, I mean, it's been omnipresent, um, and that's some good. Uh, I think there's a lot of bullshit, too. So, uh, yeah, that's what you get at health. You can go. <laughs> well, I've been spending a lot of time here in the Health Gorilla booths where we've been talking interoperability and uh, TEFCA, so uh, that's been top of mind for me, for sure. Um, for me, I actually didn't go to any sessions. I'm sorry, Health. Um, I had a lot of one-on-ones and a lot of meetings, so mostly for me it was about people kind of telling me their plans and goals for next year and getting alignment on that and you know what we're going to be working on related to APIs and interoperability. I couldn't say interoperability, and I say it every day. 
profile excellence. So, you know, it, our, our focus here in particular, uh, obviously we do interoperability, we do APIs, we talk about those all the time. We're, we're, uh, uh, we've recently announced, as you may have seen, uh, the, the launch of our individual access services uh, product. So that's a, been a focus for us. And as you know, if you're a regular viewer, it certainly is, is a, a, an ongoing focus where we've, we've delved into all of the, the, the questions and challenges and, and, and potential benefits around patient access to, to their own health records. So hopefully we're seeing that uh, become uh, a little bit more of, uh, of an ongoing operational reality. I know folks like, like uh, Jennifer have been working on that for a long time and have, have been able to get a lot of things accomplished. but. Uh, still some challenges there, and, and uh, we're all working through those. One of those challenges is, is identity, and how do we actually ensure that we're, we're really talking about the right person. I know that as we were, were kind of huddling beforehand, uh, there was, was a little bit of, of conversation that we were all having around identity. So uh, interested, Jenny, in, in you know, it's, it's a topic we've talked about before, but where would you um, uh, jump in in terms of, of some of the latest uh, thoughts that you have on the identity questions. I think Brendan first needs to move over so his mic doesn't catch your mic. Oh, never mind. Okay, I think first we just have to level set on what we're talking about when we say identity. So if a consumer wants to get their data, they only have really three vehicles in a digital way to get their data, right? They can go through an OAuth 2 workflow. They can go into their patient portal. They can download that data. Um, and then they can use an IAS vendor or and whoever they've partnered with for an IL2 solution. So I think we can say this publicly. There's Clear, there's LexisNexis, there's Persona, there's um, ID.me, sorry ID.me. And each of those ways that you authenticate who you are is tied to a specific workflow to get your data. So if it's a going into your patient portal, you're using a set of credentials that have been given to you by your healthcare provider, if you're going to use an API, you're going to reuse those set of credentials to get your data via an API in the OAuth 2 workflow with Fire APIs, or you're going to sign up for an on-ramp or a QHIN or something that can allow you to query under patient request and go through an identity proofing event via clearid.me and then do a patient match to pull back you know, documents from a HIE or National Network or in the future QHIN. Those are the only way, besides from walking into a HIM department and getting your paper records, that you can get your information. So it's just a question of which is actually going to get the most adoption, what has scale, and where is there going to be the least amount of patient drop-off in actually going through that workflow? Because all of them have friction points that you know, doesn't allow for a consumer to quickly and easily get their data. I would argue, Jenny, that uh, that we need all of it, right? I mean, like so many things in interoperability, just because there's a new tool doesn't mean the old tools are immediately thrown aside, right? I mean, people are still going to go to medical records departments and get things on paper. People are still going to use portals. You know, there's still going to be, you know, the, the Apple Health, Common Health, now the new, the new announcement of One Record, you know, Samsung, et cetera. Um, all, of the, all of that will exist. And now we're going to have individual access services under Tefka. I, I think that, I think it's confusing though for consumers because and I think Brendan will have something nice to say about this. Like, if I'm a consumer and I'm trying to figure out how to get my data, I am going to look from my 
I'm going to think about, well, where do I go to get that? I'm going to go to my provider site, and I'm going to find the medical records page or the patient portal page, right? And maybe if the health system does a good job, they're going to say on the patient portal page, you can also get your data through a third-party app, or it's going to say we're connected to an HIE, or we're connected to a national network, or QHIN, and it gives that patient education with the proper links they can click through and do that. Um, if you've ever requested medical records from medical record department, it's horrible. Um, there's long forms, it's confusing, you have to pay time materials by state. For the portal workflow, like most and high intent users are gonna go into an app store, download an app, and then there's gonna be more like API based workflows where they're using a middleware service to essentially plat of healthcare to power a workflow, whether it's using your claims data to connect to something or maybe for legal purposes or for clinical trials, whatever it is, and that's where you're going to see the, probably the highest adoption of Fire APIs with the OAuth workflow because there's going to be more mass distribution instead of trying to own the patient relationship. The IAL2 workflow is the most ideal because it doesn't require the consumer to remember where they received care, but I am pessimistic about the adoption of patient requests via participants on HINs or QHINs going forward. And we could talk about that. So I'm going to stop my well, soapbox. Just to be clear, Jenny, so you're pessimistic uh, that the data holders will release the data in response to a request supported by IL2. Is that correct? I think that in the current version of Tefka, they gave a loophole to participants within the QHINs that is going to erode the success of the patient request workflow. Uh, via IAL2? Yeah. I think, you're, I think that they gave way to certain vendors' wants and needs for it to be a fire-based workflow, which just is essentially OAuth2 plus fire within a QHIN instead of having to go and for developer register at every single EHR, you're going to do some sort of dynamic registration via QHIN, but the consumer still has the same friction workflow of remembering where they received care. What I'll add on there is that the network-based approach to patient access is undoubtedly better. Like in the ideal world, no one wants to remember their username and password. If we can do it safely, if we can get everyone to respond, we would, we would shift that way. I think the problem now is that the narrative around patient access on these networks is a morality play. And to technology adoption is not, when you make it about morals, when you say, oh, you should switch to EVs because it's better for the environment, there's a subset of people that, that appeals to and a bunch of people who don't give a shit. And so like, if you look at the adoption of EVs, it, it's really picked up in the past couple of years because it became economically viable, they became really cool with Tesla and stuff. And so like, if we want people to, if we want hospitals and clinics to be really in on patient access via this kind of scary, uh, you know, feeling like it's unsafe networked approach, we have to turn it into something that's they find valuable, that they don't just say, need to see the benefit of like the good of their heart, um, which is what it is now. You have to be a forward-thinking sort of healthcare organization to say, oh yeah, l let me release through these networks because. It's scary, and there's there's HIPAA liability. It's a lot. That's a, I was gonna say it's not morality. It's liability. It's who's liable if the patient matches wrong. And look, it's health gorilla's job to educate the world and probably influence the other uh, candidate QHINs in adopting uh, 
in not adopting, in responding to patient requests. That's like the biggest thing that you guys have to work on on your special secret committee where all the QHINs get to talk. Like you guys need to be talking about this because I do not believe that the other QHINs are properly educating their participants on their responsibilities for individual access under TEFCA because we've already seen the EHRs not properly educate their providers in just the open developer ecosystem. So why do we think that the EHRs and their QHIN that they pick are going to do the right thing and educate the participants of their responsibilities to enable individual access via that IEL2 document-based workflow. You know, Brendan, I want to pick up on what you were saying. The idea of finding some way to make this sexy, you know, and... Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and I'm thinking back to the early days of portals. You know, early portals, I mean, we had the first one in the country, they were sexy, you know, it was a real plus to be able to tell your, your patients, hey, and we've got this portal, you know, now of course, nobody wants a portal, but, uh, but, but you know, to be able to say, and it's kind of like open notes, it's the same idea, like this is, this is cool, this is good for patients, this is good for your relationship. So if you sort of take open notes and you say, and you can download them to the app of your choice, I mean, I think, I think that's sexy. Yeah, I mean, just, it's, it's ROI. What's the ROI on patient access? If you're saying, oh, they can store it in a PHR, okay, you're going to get some people, but like, they're going to be like, okay, great. Like, another thing I have to sort of support. There's compliance risk, or there's a HIPAA risk. But if you say, oh, well, like, we can decrease the spend on like records release in the, in the HIM department, okay, you're starting to shift the narrative to something that has real return for the data holders, for the provider groups, which are going to be resistant otherwise if it's just from the good of their heart. So I think it can be done. It's just, it takes healthcare. It takes other forward-thinking organizations that have an incentive to be forward-thinking in this space and really push it forward. I don't know that regulation is going to get us there. HTI-1, we were just talking about it, the new proposed rule, had a kind of clumsy sort of carrot on getting people to use TEFCA, and I don't think that'll be there when they finalize the rule. Explain it for the audience. So HDI-1 is the sort of follow-on for Cures, the Cures Act, um, which expands some of the criteria for certified EHRs. Um, it also has a new change to information blocking, saying that if you do TEFCA, you, don't, you can sort of have, get an exception to every other route for data access or for information blocking. And so like, that's a nice carrot. If I'm a hospital and I say, oh shit, I can do TEFCA, and I don't have to do patient access APIs. I don't need to do traditional records release. Okay, that's a, an incentive. I don't think it's the right one. Like you were saying, we need to keep the, the, the investments we've made into patient access APIs, into traditional release of information. That shouldn't go away, right? When we got credit cards, we still have check cash, we still have checks. You don't get rid of old technology overnight. Ooh, I want to say something about that. Wait, but I want to go back to the other thing. Oh no, what's happening? So, for... When that rule came out, we had a podcast and we talked about it, I, and I think we all agreed that, and is that they worded that incorrectly. Because, like, you can't, to say that people aren't going to get medical records for the HIM department, that's not realistic. And then say that you're not going to call information blocking, like, that's not going to, there's so many workflows that providers have to fulfill right now for requests. We can't say everybody joins TEFCA and the world is solved. I know that's a big deal for Health Gorilla, but like, let's just be real about that. And then for your thing about credit cards and checks, I mean, that's the beauty of the patient access APIs, right? That's the plat of healthcare. That's how we make FinTech come into health tech. I mean, the barrier there and the barrier is real is always going to be the username and password. 
And for the payer side, like, that's okay. You can go and like make an account on Cigna if you have a social security number and some demographics. You can't do that with a provider. So if we want to enable those APIs on the provider side, which we've spent a lot of time and effort and on regulation pushing it forward, it's actually how do we get hospitals to provision access to, for all their patients and give them username and passwords easily? Yeah, so both Brendan and my company um, use the payer patient access APIs, which are separate from the clinical APIs. So these are APIs that payers had to stand up um, in the summer of 21, and it's the clinical, financial, and formulary data. There is a higher, most people know their member portal information because it's connected to financials, right? Um, and you don't have to remember every hospital, you just have to remember maybe those four health plans you've had in your lifetime. The limitation with those APIs is it's not all lines of business. We were just talking about this beforehand, that you know certain uh, payers support commercial lines. There is a law in California that now all the commercial lines are coming out for all the plans that are in the, operate in that state. If we could have just some sort of the payers felt a real responsibility to get these APIs out. And they either built it themselves or they worked with fire server vendors. We are not seeing the same thing on the EHR side beyond the top 10 vendors. Most of the top 10 vendors had a DSTU2 API out, so they were prepared for R4. The rest of the market only certified um, for their G10 update, and their APIs are not production ready at all. So let's let's actually dig into that a little bit. That's that was a really interesting statement about the the, the the dichotomy between the payer preparedness and even attitude. I suppose I'll I'll say that then uh, c contrasting that with what you've seen in your observations over time of the EHRs. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Why do you think that is? Money. <laughs> so for payers, you know, for the mandated lines of business, who pays them? The government. And they don't want to do anything that, you know, potentially would cut off their ability to run those lines of business, right? For providers, that's not releasing the, releasing information is not tied to payments. If anything, it's more tied to penalties. So there's just a different kind of thing. And I, I honestly, working with all those payers between 21 to 22, they were really aggressive. They wanted to get this work done because they wanted to finish the work and move those resources onto new things, which is also an issue now. One thing that's interesting is if you go and look at the certified EHR program, there's not that many incentives still tied to it. No. Like a lot of them have expired. A lot of them aren't there. And so like, yeah, there's still for hospitals. I think it's Medicare. Medicare. It's, it's tied there. So if you're getting Medicare payments, which everyone, every hospital is, they need to have it. But if I'm a small single doc practice and I, I'm, I'm not just doing direct uh, primary care, if I'm not taking CMS money, what, what, it's a status symbol. Certified EHR is just a status symbol and that's kind of a shame. Uh, I think a lot of vendors still are just doing it like rote motion, but that's why, like to your point, it's, there's not the incentives. And you're certainly seeing a lot more non-certified EHR use in the digital health space, in the telemedicine space. I have a lot to say on this topic. I know I'm talking a lot. You, Jay? <laughs> so I'm really glad Brendan decided to join the dark side and try and make patient access work commercially. Um, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> but when he started working out, I was like, oh, I don't have to work so hard anymore on the payer APIs because now there's somebody else fighting to get those APIs live and production ready. Who has an actual technical background? Where I've been focused recently is on the um, e uh, certified EHR 
APIs that were not available prior to the start of this year. So what I did in the beginning of this year is I, I emailed every, I, well, I scraped the whole list from ONC and then I categorized every EHR and then I went after them basically sending an email making a request that I'd like to connect to their API. Um, nobody responded. Like, there was just quiet. So I was like, okay, I'm going to wait till the penalties come out. The penalties are now in place as of September 1st for certified EHRs and HINs. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. So my approach now is I'm going back to all the EHRs who never responded, and I'm going to do the same thing that I did with the payers is basically say, hey, I want to connect to your API. I want to go live. What I'm seeing already is we have the top 10 vendors who are golden. I'm going to just call them out. Epic, Cerner, Meditech, Allscripts, NextGen, Medent, Greenway, Athena, ECW. Am I missing anybody? Oh, Sounds right. <laughs> Everybody else, they certified to G10 and their APIs are not ready for production. They do not know how to onboard applications and they've messed up identity. They couldn't even follow the, the companies that came before them on how to properly implement an OAuth 2 workflow that enables consumers to get their data. That's the biggest issue beyond the developer experience now is their interpretation of patient request is so banana towns that they will be information blockers. Speaking of information blocking, as you said, September was a, was a big date. That, that was the date after which information blocking complaints are actually going to be investigated. Uh, we were just checking the ONC website. There's a website you can go to where you can see the, the listing, the numbers of the information blocking complaints. I was anticipating that come September there was going to be a surge in information blocking complaints, but there actually wasn't any. And I understand it's because Jenny's been distracted. She hasn't had a chance to I haven't to submitted submit my complaints. Yet. Yeah, but but uh, we want to encourage all of you who think that you're experiencing information blocking. This is the time to report it. All the 800 plus complaints that were put in during the two years before September 1st are all of interesting historical uh, note, but none of those are going to be investigated. All of the investigations that are occur, those that will occur, are going to be on those submitted after September 1st of this year. And what we've heard is that if somebody submitted a complaint before September 1st of this year and they resubmitted after September 1st of this year, that's going to make it even more likely that it's going to get investigated because that shows a pattern of information blocking with two different complaints. So if you're experiencing information blocking, now is the time to go to the ONC website and submit that as a concern. Yeah, and I, we were talking about this before, but ONC doesn't keep things around that aren't used. There's tons of programs, the patient identity challenge from a few years ago that they're gonna, they did, it just doesn't exist on their website anymore. Because just like anything, you can't support everything. And if it's not high volume being used, it'll go away. And information blocking is one of those apparatus that if it's not used, they'll, they'll, fight, they'll do the next thing. And it's a, it's a powerful tool, right? It's taking the, the HIPAA rights that we already had and giving us a, a much stronger pathway to, to to fulfill them. I have so much more things to say. We can't, no, we need more time. Yeah, we yeah, we, we started late. We could go long. It's all good. We're, we, They're trying to kick us off stage. No way. You gave me a mic. I'm staying here. Okay, let's keep talking about the things I want to talk about. Ready? Okay, so <laughs> they don't usually give me a mic. Um, I agree with you. If if people don't take this seriously, 
people say it'll be the same thing that they say about patient portals. The adoption wasn't high enough, blah, blah, blah. We haven't seen these, these APIs are not even ready for scale. And here's the thing, if the if they can't make the patient access APIs work, why do we think we're going to be able to use these fire APIs for other use cases, right? Like they, these are not, nobody has tested these at scale. Like there's not enough volume of transactions going through to say that these could support the future of fire on Tefka. Like it's just not realistic. The EHRs are not prepared to handle these kinds of volumes of transactions. I want to say one more thing. I know you want to say something. But the other thing is that the way the EHR developers who are not the top 10 and have interpreted the law is so messed up. They really haven't taken on the responsibility to understand their responsibilities under the law and their obligations to their customers. And this trickles down to providers because providers also have to understand the law and their obligations under the law. I just want to agree with you like okay. very strongly. Like if you think patient access was hard, the proposed CMS rule around prior auth, yeah. all the complexity of like yes. the CDS hooks and the, you know, like it's not simple, like patient access was dead simple and they've screwed it up, both payers and providers. To imagine this complex exchange for the provider access API and the prior auth API, just bananas. And so, yeah, we got to use them, we got to get them so they have the right talent, the right technology, and then they, we can build these, these next layer of awesome stuff that I'm sure like, you as a provider are like, probably had tons Bring of stuff with prior auth, so yeah. I also see a lot of um, smaller EHRs who they outsource to a third party fire server vendor, which we saw that on the payer side too, and that's fine. A lot of the third party fire server vendors are great and they were great to work with, but the third party fire server vendors I'm seeing on the EHR side are really, they oversold something that they had no idea what they should be supporting their customers with. And it's putting all of those EHRs and all those providers at risk. And honestly, there's only a two in the market and one of them has over 30 customers. And I can't say who they are, but you can ask me later. And um, they did a bad job. Brandon, to your point earlier that uh, so much of the talk here at the meeting has been about AI. This is a problem that AI is not going to solve. You know, we still need interoperability. We still need APIs. In fact, if they want to do AI on any meaningful data, we have to keep doing this work. Should I buy the URL interoperability.ai? I think so. I'd be surprised if it's available, but... <laughs> I own 21stCenturyGearZack.com. Oh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> I, I owned Elon Health. Uh, ElonMuskHealth.com for a oh. while, uh, and then decided that was a bad look. So, uh. so tying this back to Tefka and IAS, my belief is if you can't do patient access in the open developer ecosystem with very specific rules, penalties, everything around it, it, it will be hard to scale it either in a fire way on fire at scale on the QHINs, and then what we're already seeing with the traditional patient request workflow with identity proofing is that nobody wants to take on that liability of the patient match, and that is your job to figure out how to convince the other QHINs and the participants to do that. I mean, that's a tall order. It's easy to say, obviously, oh, yeah. but, but, but... You've been working on it for years. You can do it. I, I have been working on it for years. Since I met you. For, for a reason. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a serious challenge. To, to get past some of the, just the fundamental math around volume of queries and, and, and error rates. Uh, and if, if we aren't able to get 
some sort of clarification on some path towards some sort of safe harbor from a HIPAA standpoint, it, it, it does increase the challenge. Yeah, if we could get a safe harbor for uh, organizations responding to patient access, it could actually happen. Um, it's frustrating to me just having our first version of one record was not fire-based. It was basically um, connecting to Care Calling Conwell, doing an identity proofing. Back then it was KBV and doing a patient match and um, pulling back CCDAs, right? The thing is, that is the workflow that consumers want. Consumers want to be able to use an identity proofing solution and then just search for their records and have their records back. And it's frustrating that we have really good solutions on the market today. We have Clear, we have ID.me, we have all the other vendors who've opened up the door for digital identity, but once that digital identity event happens, it's still on the, there's still so many places the workflow can break with the responding gateway just not responding. And then the question is, is it a technical issue or is it the organization decided to opt out and they're not gonna send you your data? Yeah, and, and I mean, that's an interesting question as to whether who who is going to leverage the, uh, the, the, the possibilities that were opened up within the, uh, the, the, the rules there, uh, I mean, at least in the initial version. If I could, I would. I would tweet the responses that you get back, like the technical responses where it says like, you know, patient request denied. Like you see that in the message that we get back as developers, like, and you can see the OID numbers. Like I could just start tweeting it. I won't, but I could. I'll just have like one more comment because I think we're well over time, but we have to make this work because right now the, it not working on the networks lends itself to bad actors. And we yes. can like sort of like pretend like they're not bad actors on these networks, but they exist. And that, that fraud and abuse is only, is only there because there's not a paved path. You build the paved path, people will go to it. And because they can't, there's incentives for these edge cases, clinical trials, uh, you know, like... Um, operations, use cases, things like that, that should be serviced. There should be a way and a paved path. And if we don't have it, we have people that are, will abuse treatment. And that's, that's not right. Brendan's actually correct. Right now, by not supporting patient requests, you have people um, abusing the treatment purpose of use. And that, that's a HIPAA violation. That's the, what they're afraid of is actually happening. It's just, um, it's, it's in a different costume. Or to there are companies at this event doing that, selling that. It's messed up. So not I think, this company. Not, not, you know, not, I'm not subtweeting here. I uh, think that, uh, <laughs> that if they really wanted, the, a safe harbor would solve all the problems. Like that's really what the government should do. It's a safe harbor under TEFCA for individual access requests so that uh, organizations do not have to fear um, a, HIP, a HIPAA breach. I do think then the next question will be if it's more of it will expose if it's more of an economical concern of exposing data to consumers is really the reason, or if it's just a fear of the government. I mean, there it's like anything else, right? There's it's it's a it's a rich tapestry of, of reasons. There there are certainly some some I think some commercial elements in there as well, but but there there there, there is some some legitimate concern uh, underlying the need for that that safe harbor or some other creative solution, whether that's that's a, a linkage of my validated digital identity into my healthcare identity in all of these various databases, and I have no illusions as to how easily that could be done. But there, there are, some solution needs to be found. Otherwise, we're, we're simply always going to be in the current state of the world. 
we're, we're not going to be able to advance healthcare as a, uh, an ecosystem in the way that we've advanced other industries. It, it, it's just not going to be able to happen. There's not a way that I see it, at least in, in a, 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 a short-term way. And I, I don't mean to, to think that you know, now we offer patient access to their records and, and all of a sudden you know, there's unicorns and rainbows and sunshine. Uh, obviously there's, there's complexity that's going to, to be there and it's not a silver bullet, but at the same time, I don't see any other obvious path that really jumps us to a new paradigm like we've seen in other industries and gets us into a more modern age where consumers have the ability to be a part of this ecosystem play meaningful workflow-oriented roles to make a lot of these interactions easier. And, and it's, it, it, sorry, go, yeah, go ahead. You obviously want to react. I like reading what Brendan writes because he used to write about it a lot before he joined Flexpa. And he was kind of always the, the outsider looking in and now he's the insider explaining everything to everyone. And I appreciate that because you write very well and you can articulate it in a way that connects it to the financial use cases. Um, but I still don't, th it's so niche what we talk about, right? So it needs to grow, it needs to get broader, and then you'll really see how it can transform a lot of use cases and, and eliminate workflows that don't need to exist anymore. I mean, there, there are an awful lot of creative people and a lot of innovative companies here, and, and setting aside whether there is some subset that, that is, is cutting some corners now, I'll say, to, to keep it, you know, keep it as nice as possible. There, there, there is a huge potential for innovation here in, in the group that surrounds us. And how do we allow that to happen? How do we enable it? That, that, that really, to me, is the tragedy in, in, in all of this, that we just can't seem to get past this first step. If there were action items, what needs to happen in the open developer ecosystem is we need more developers requesting and putting pressure on the certified EHRs who just did a horrible job with their APIs. We need, on the payer API side, for all lines of business to be supported. So beyond California, every state should say, hey, you have a right to your data, and this is going to be all lines, not just the mandated ones. In the Tefka ecosystem, what we need is for um, the data sources, who are the participants, where data is generated at the point of care, to actually say, yeah, we're going to support individual access. And if we need a safe harbor, we're going to go to the government and ask for a safe harbor, like be proactive in, in allowing consumers to get their data. Are you aware of any work? I don't know if it's is this something that, that the Karen Alliance has, has touched on as far as, as what a safe harbor might look like? Um, if we have, I don't remember the answer. They de they definitely talk, we definitely talk about it a lot. I think they're worried about it. They're, they want to make they want to open up this ecosystem in Tefka. They want to align. Karen wants to align with Tefka, and get and to get there, they see safe harbor as as necessary. Um, yeah, I mean, one solution, we could just dump it in a big database. How about that? And then put AI on top. Ooh. And then run AI. Yeah. We'll do one, one, AI one, clinical One giant database with, with AI powering it is, is clearly the solution. So Blockchain. blockchain. <laughs> it, indeed. Uh, I, I, have, I have no idea how to wrap that up, but... It is time to wrap up. Thanks so much to our, our, uh, our live audience here. Uh, and uh, thanks, as always, to my panel participants. And, and thank you, Brendan, for the, the guest appearance. We love having you. Uh, and uh, with that, it's a wrap. 
thanks everyone and uh, take care.